Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Ramblick and welcome to this particular podcast. Uh, we've got a lot of people focused on politics at the moment and leadership, given we've had the coronavirus pandemic and, and a range of other, uh, other issues that have put politicians front and centre. But in putting politicians front and centre, it's caused some of us, um, including my guests today, to think about what we're observing, why we're observing it and why the behaviour of certain individuals in the political system is what it is. Author, author and journalist Sean Kelly had, uh, penned a fairly insightful volume on the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. He's called it The Game, and he joins me today to talk about the way in which he sees the, uh, the Prime Minister or key themes that emerge and uh, perhaps looking at the way in which people can decode what politicians more generally are doing. Sean, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Now, uh, there are two words I need to ask you about first before we go into uh, touching on the okay. broader themes that, that, that I notice you've been uh, playing with and, and analysing. Why call it the game? Uh, there is an analysis in there of the ways in which politics has become a game for many people. Uh, and, and politicians are the, the main class of people there. I think there is a very large extent to which many, many politicians treat politics entirely in terms of winning the next election. Now, of course, there is um, there is some justification for that. Winning an election is, an, is a very important, you know, the most important uh market in the political landscape. Winning an election brings with it power and the ability to make changes in line with what you believe the world should look like uh, is obviously very significant. The danger comes when you forget that your actions have consequences outside of their uh, political consequences. They have consequences for real people in the real world that have nothing to do with your chances at the next election. And so I think politicians fall prey to that. Uh, and I think journalists, to a very great extent, uh, fall prey to that. It's not a new observation that, that a lot of journalism treats politics like a horse race, like a, a type of contest, uh, and um, that is the case. I think that's become increasingly the case in recent decades. And then I think we have to admit as well, Tom, the complicity of many of us with that framework. Uh, a lot of us tend to approach politics as a game as well. We, I don't think we would admit that to ourselves, but we often, many of us, look at politics in terms of tactics, in terms of strategy. We, we stand back and we really admire uh, politicians' cleverness. And I think often that political cleverness is elevated above questions of substance, and I think that's a real problem. You've made several key observations there, and I want to start breaking them down just a little, piece them out. Okay. Um, in terms of you, you talk about the, the objective being winning elections uh, in order to obtain power, mm. um, when, you're, when you've been... In, in your writings over a long period of time, and certainly in, in, in putting putting the book together, do you observe 
that there is a um, any example or any sense of the pursuit of power for its own sake? I mean, absolutely. Uh, and look, this is um, this is a tricky area because I think that ambition drives a lot of people in life, and often, and, and I don't know exactly where that comes from, but uh, ambition is often devoid of. Uh, purpose as an initiating impulse. People want to achieve something in life, uh, and then. I, but but I think for many people, with the course of their life as they grow older, they realise that uh, unfocused ambition is is a fairly empty thing. That actually they need they need to fill it up. They need to have meaningful aims. They need to achieve something for the sake of what is being achieved, not not for the sake of a title or the, or the prestige. Whereas I think politicians often operate in the opposite direction. Uh, they they begin with some idea of what they might want to get done, and politics slowly saps that out of them. Uh, and that that's not excusable, but it is understandable in the sense that every environment that anybody works in has a dramatic influence on the people who are working in that environment. Uh, eventually, you become your environment, and once politics has ticked, you know, once it ticked over into that. Uh, sense of being played as a game above any other concerns, uh, it was inevitable that the people who entered politics would begin treating it that way as well. So if you, you know, if you're a new politician, you're elected to parliament tomorrow and you go into the parliament, probably you're, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but when everybody around you is treating politics uh, in terms only of the election, it's a very hard force to resist. What you've said leads to another observation, I guess, and that is someone's entry into Parliament may be driven by virtue, but they walk into a, into a caucus or a party room and it turns into a game of snakes and ladders. Yes, absolutely. In that you, you take, if you're in Labor and you're a part of a faction, you may end up get, you know, taking one step forward two steps back, uh, depending on depending on factional fortunes and negotiations and ministerial appointments, goodness knows what else. If you're in the coalition, it, it might depend on, you know, who your best mate is or which prayer group you attend in parliament. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. So it, it, all of that seems to play out and in, in, in that respect. Where do you take... Um, when you take the observation of the media that you've made, which is the media is uh, is swept up in this ecosystem, mm. for want of a better term, um, how do you deal with this performative? How do you put the bra brakes on? the performative nature, how do you discipline the subject? Or is it too much performance happening at once and that, that kind of thing doesn't work? We see it, we see them constantly, that is the politicians, in front of a camera. How do you, how do you stop them from being that performative mm. and bring them you know, below that sort of layer of frozen ice on a lake, if I can use that analogy. Mm. 
And how, how can we as a society do that? Or? How can we? Well, how, let's start with the media first. Um, how can the media stop politicians from doing that? Yes, precisely. They no, both, look, the media is the first port of call, surely. Yeah, no, 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 you're right. Look, it's a, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult question. There's obviously a, a complex play between uh, the various elements involved. Um, when... When television came along, I think it's brief, worth briefly going back to the past, when television came along, you know, uh, that began to change politics. It didn't happen immediately, but it happened pretty fast. And my book, I, I write about a book called The Killing, the, the not The Killing, Jeepers, The uh, Selling of the President, 1968. Uh, I guess it was a, a time of lots of violence in politics, but at, at any rate, The Selling of the President. And... Um, it was about Richard Nixon's failed 1968 campaign and it focused on television advertising and Roger Ailes, who would later go on to head up Fox News, is quoted at the time, a young man at this point, saying, this is what politicians will be forever after. They will be performers. Uh, and he was right, of course, and that has become more and more true. And, of course, what starts as, a, as an observation begins to be uh, to, to seep into the, the very marrow of politics. And over time, politicians have become more and more skilled at performing. And alongside their greater skill at performance, what's happened is that we have become more and more accepting of the idea that this is what politicians do. And, and journalists as well have become more and more accepting of that. So... It's a very difficult process to reverse. I'm, I'm not sure uh, that the media can necessarily reverse it, but I, I suppose part of the answer to your question would be that there needs to stop being a simple acceptance of performance on its own terms. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that a politician says something, the fact that they uh, performatively act a certain way doesn't mean that that has to be presented unmediated to the public. Uh, and uh, you know, to take Scott Morrison, it was remarkable the extent to which uh, his performance of a rugby league loving, uh, once a week curry cooking man was communicated to the public. Uh, he did it in this enormously contrived way. Uh, he he held a press conference in his first week holding a rugby league ball. He gave his first television interview as Prime Minister to a rugby league star. He uh, mentioned Go Sharks in radio interviews without any context whatsoever. He just slipped it in there at the end. Uh, it was this contrived performance. And I think what often happens with the press, and, and this is harder perhaps uh, when you're talking about television or radio, certainly when they're live, but what happened in parts of the press is those things that Scott Morrison did were simply passed on to the public as though the press is simply um, a window, you know, with, with Scott Morrison on one side of it and the public on the other. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the image is important. It doesn't mean that that's the most important thing about Scott Morrison, simply because he has chosen to communicate it. And Scott Morrison is just an example here. Uh, I think that sense of unmediated passing on of whatever a politician happens to want to present has become a problem with time and it's become a problem with time because politicians have become better at performing. 50 years ago, it made sense. 50 years ago, a politician was performing less or at least in a yeah. less skilled fashion for the cameras 
And so in some sense, the public would get a sense of what was actually going on, what that leader was actually doing. But now politicians know what they have to do. And so if the press simply accept that and pass it on to the public, then, uh, you know, that has all sorts of implications. But the, the thing that happens he, in this situation is someone then says, oh, well, Morrison barracks for the Sharks. Oh, okay. Um, Albanese barracks for the Rabbitohs. Mm. Yeah. And I, what's that got to do with the price of fish, a loaf of bread, a carton of milk, um, my power, my, my power bill, my water bill, but 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 the sharkies, right? Yeah. It, it is so disconnected with. Yeah. The very thing that that, that people out there worry about. Yes, and of I mean, there's well, going to be some element of you know who are these politicians? What are they interested in? Fair enough. Uh, you know, there's there's no, you know, I try to say in my book, you know, we can't be completely. Uh, righteous about these things they're inevitable to some extent the, the problem comes in the degree of it uh, as you say Tom they're not connected to the price of bread uh, and if we focus on them to the exclusion of, com- of important and complex policy issues that's when we all lose out and that's absolutely what has happened. But the, the other thing that happens when you enter into that, that space where Annabelle Crabb enters into, which you you, you will recall the episode, you probably watched it more than once uh, with Scott Morrison, where she asked him about media criticism. Mm. And he says that he's learned not to care about it. Mm. There's an interesting phenomenon that's emerged from that moment, which is people on social media have turned that moment and that one line mm. into a meme. Yes. So there's something else that's going on here as well. When you've got people within the community who've turned around and said, oh, he's used the words, mm. I've learned not to care. Well, yep. I, think, I, think, I think that I'm being precise, but I may be paraphrasing. Um and that's become the meme. Yes, yeah, and and it's uh, and it's misleading. Um, it's uh, in its own way, and I think that happens a lot on on both sides of politics. Uh, and look, this is absolutely part of the issue. I think what politicians have learned to do over time in their political communication uh, is less and less they try to persuade people. More and more they try to provide their supporters with uh, a set of talking points that those supporters can then use. And then you essentially see, and you you can observe this on social media, um, people with opposite views talking past each other and they're not really interested in a a dialogue. Now, I'm not not damning social media as a whole. Uh, I don't... uh, I don't join with those uh, those members of the press who want to entirely, um, uh, you know, write off various parts of social media. But uh, but there are problems with it. Of course, there are. 
Uh, and certainly that sense of people speaking past each other and potentially misrepresenting what politicians have said simply to reinforce what they already think is one of those problems. It, it certainly is. I, I interviewed uh, Chris Hulman some time back now mm-hmm. uh, for, for this particular podcast uh, series and, and he explained to me the origin of his tweet, you know, the, the, the sewer rat stuff. Um, which is he not so much, he wasn't so much concerned about himself, but the way in which his colleagues were being treated by people on social media. Look, and some colleagues, some members of the press are treated absolutely atrociously, uh, mostly women, mm-hmm. uh, often people of colour, and it's it's horrific. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that that's what sparked his. I don't, I don't think human believes. I, I don't remember the exact tweet, to be honest. Oh, oh we, it, there was one. There was a tweet one one morning. He comes up and he sort of said, "Ah, top of the morning, sewer rats." And it did. It, it spawned people. It spawned a whole raft of people on Twitter saying, "Oh, um, yeah, changing their little profile titles to, to mm. sewer rats and everything else." So that that uh, that tweet ended up having a life on its own. Uh, people sort of taking it, taking it, and owning it. Hey, I'm a sewer rat on Twitter. Mm. Um, but the point Yulman was making in terms of the way in which Twitter can uh, dehuman oh, sorry, Twitter users can use it to dehumanise or discriminate or put down. Mm. Um, and in, in, in some respects to know uh, with no cost to themselves, um, which is interesting. Whenever you write a major piece of work, mm. Um, you start somewhere. Um, and it's not usually where you end up and the finished product mm. that the reader's seats. Where did you begin with the game? What was the first thing you started belting down? What, where did you start with it? Well, the, the real starting point, uh, came in 2018 when I was approached by the editor of the monthly Nick Fight to write a long profile of Scott Morrison. He'd just become Prime Minister at this point uh, and nobody really knew much about him. And uh, so I gathered everything I knew about him, I gathered everything there was on the, on the public record and I talked to a bunch of people and um, I kind of sat and stared at these, at these facts for, for quite some time and there wasn't anything very clear because the thing about Scott Morrison is he's uh, he's avoided talking about what he believes uh, when, when he says he believes in one thing he'll often contradict himself not that not that far after uh, his language is often very general so um, it was quite hard to tease out consistent strands and it was only after quite a long time that I realized that that was the key to the piece the key to Scott Morrison's public definition was the fact that there was no definition you know he was a uh, he was a leader, he was a politician defined more by absences than presences. And you had to look very carefully at those absences of the way he had very deliberately left no trace over time. And so that was that was the start of the article, uh, that the start of the, the book, really. And actually, uh, you know, it's, it's quite nerve wracking writing a profile of a prime minister who was a relatively unknown quantity when they just begin that job, because you think, well, I could be proved entirely wrong uh, very, very fast. But uh, luckily or unluckily, um, 
depending on uh, what, you, what you're privileging there, with, with perhaps unluckily for the country at times, uh, I was I was proven largely right. I mean, he has remained a man who does not want to leave much of a trace, a man who does not want to be clear about his beliefs. Uh, and uh, so I've been surprised at how well that article has, has stood up. The way you describe it, um, Scott Morrison, or, or the way you describe the process of analysis, is a bit like looking at a, uh, it's a bit like examining a piece of music. Mm. You listen to the music, and then if you're musically inclined and you're trained, you pull up the sheet music, you look at the notes. Okay. The silence is just as important as the actual notes that are played. Ah, uh, I see. Yes. Right. Um, and that becomes a part of that. Uh, that becomes a part of uh, the analysis of character from what you said to me. That, he, that what is said is just a, is equally important as what is not said, or when, or when silence occurs, if you like. Yes. No, that's absolutely true, and that has remained the case throughout Scott Morrison's prime ministership. I mean, in, in, a, in a greater sense, of course, the silences are important to look at in any prime minister's career. The things that they choose not to focus on are just as important as the things that they choose to focus on. Uh, the reason that those things are essential to understanding Scott Morrison is because they are the dominant fact about him. Uh, there, is, there is nothing clear that he wants to do. There is um, uh, nothing very clear about him. And one of the one of the interesting, one of the odd things about writing the book is that when I started, people were quite bored with him. People couldn't really understand why I was writing this book, and and the idea that anybody would ever want to buy this book uh, shocked people. And the idea that I had to spend all this time with this man shocked people. But by now, people are actually quite fascinated by these absences, by, uh, by this oddly enigmatic man. Uh, and it's been interesting and, and, you know, very fortunate, but it's been very interesting to watch that transition across the time that I've been writing this book. There's, um, when we spoke earlier, we talked about the community being complicit in mm. um Politics. We know. We know the media is complicit. The media, media is, is a part of that that environment, um, and we've contemplated perhaps just a little as to how uh, the media could inoculate itself to use a sort of um, infectious infectious diseases friendly term. Given we're still in a COVID pandemic, how do you inoculate the media? Media needing to think about that, but. How does the community deal with this? Because mm. they're, they're at, the, at the same time as being the people who vote once every three years or thereabouts um, for their local member, and which translates into the, the ultimate champion and leadership. Uh, what does the electorate need to be thinking about as we go into another spate of uh, uh, electoral sort of propaganda, which is going to happen soon enough. Mm. 
Look, I'm, I think one of the one of the things that can be difficult in uh, getting people to think deeply about politics is the idea, and I completely understand where this comes from, that individuals can't make that much of a difference. And of course, that can be true in certain ways. But I'm a I'm a big believer that. Uh, cultural change is the is the strongest force in politics and that does ultimately come from individuals slowly uh, bit by bit person by person shifting and I think that as a community as a society we need to shift our approach to politics of accepting the idea that politicians are performing uh, because uh, as I was saying before that there was this increase in in that the skill of the performances the politicians put on. And I think what that has meant over time is that politics has become distanced from reality. And we we accept that. We watch what a politician is doing, is performing, and we say to ourselves, ah, well, they're just, they're just doing that because it's a good political tactic. It's not necessarily what they mean. It's not necessarily what they believe. Mm. I think at some point those, um, those distinctions have to break down because they operate as an excuse we always tell ourselves that a politician doesn't really mean what he or she is saying because they're just playing a game, then we stop holding them accountable for the consequences of their actions. And so I think what we need to do is work very hard to remember that politics has consequences, uh, that uh, you know you might be privileged and largely walled off from the, the consequences of political decisions, but mm-hmm. many, many, many Australians aren't. And in the long run, uh, facing crises like climate change, pandemics, intensity of the refugee crisis, uh, the change in global order, none of us are immune from the very real consequences of political decisions. And so we need to learn to think about politics again in terms of substance. Uh, look, the, the last three years is, is a, it's obviously a very odd period and COVID has driven a lot of concerns uh, off the front pages, but I'm not sure we were that focused on them before COVID hit. I mean, Scott Morrison's government has obviously been distracted by COVID, and that's um, to some extent a reasonable defence to how little the government has done. But it is worth remembering that from the time of Scott Morrison's election in May 2019 uh, through to January or March in 2020, virtually nothing was done. And I don't think that people were immensely frustrated by that. Uh, and what concerns me is not that people aren't angry at Morrison's government. That's you know, People will make up their own minds. What frustrates me is that we as a community are not frustrated when a government doesn't do anything. Governments should do things. Uh, governments should look at the problems mm. around Australia and figure out what needs to be fixed and set about fixing them. And there are lots of problems uh, you know, and increasingly Australia is falling behind in fairly important ways in, in education, in childcare. The OECD table that showed Australia coming last on vaccination circulated very widely. But we are also down the bottom of lists when it comes to childcare, when it comes to school education, when it comes to climate change. Uh, we are doing pretty badly across a range of areas. We are a rich country, a peaceful country. We have an incredible health system, uh, but various things are deteriorating and we have to try to remember that ourselves that politics is important one of the phenomena that 
concerns me, and this is probably a convenient segue into wrapping our conversation up, which which could go on all afternoon, trust me. <laughs> but you, you'll probably get sick of hearing the sound of my voice. But the thing being, um, <laughs> there is something that is certainly obvious on social media and your reflections on this would be useful. And that is when people seek to inform themselves about politics, they tend to exclude certain sources of information, whether it be a, um, a news limited publication or or Sky News or whatever, and they say, well, I stick with this because I see that as reliable. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you believe, and we're both talking from the privilege of, of being politically aware, mm. um, engaged in reflecting on this system as part of our work, mm -hmm. to what extent do you believe that that also harms people's ability to engage in, this, in the, the civic duty of being aware and also holding a government to account. The, the narrow casting of media? Yep. That's a tough question, Tom. It's a tough I question. thought I'd put it to you because you've answered everything else quite brilliantly. <laughs> You're too kind. Um, <laughs> no. No. I... Look, where to start with this? I, I, there is obviously a broader crisis in media. The broader crisis in media is tied to money. Uh, journalistic outfits have less money than they did. Uh, uh -huh. there, have, there has been a set of trends in the news over the last 20 years which are problems in various ways. Uh, but the, the greatest one is the lack of money. And what that has meant is that cheap news has rocketed up the charts as far as news organisations are concerned. That means that breaking news is given preference. That doesn't mean it's important. It just means that it's just happened. Very easy, cheap way of filling airtime. Doesn't require any investigation. Uh, it also means that huge precedence has been given to opinion because opinion is relatively cheap. Now, you know, I'm an opinion columnist. I've, I've benefited from that. Uh, so no moral high ground there. But... In terms of news organisations, it means that more money is spent on uh, opinions than it is on investigative journalism. You said, uh, can, can, mm -hmm. apologies for interrupting the flow. Is, that, is there a problem with journalists as celebrity rather than journalists as interrogator creeping in there as, as well? Uh, look, difficult to say. There have always been celebrity journalists. Um, it's just yeah. they used to be on television and now they tend to, uh, to be on Twitter. I think there is, I think there probably is a breakdown of the barriers that existed to some extent between opinion and news reporting. Uh, and I, I think Twitter has definitely been a factor in that. Mm -hmm. Australia has never been as good at, keeping that barrier up as, um, as certain places overseas. I think uh, 
America, they treat that that division between news and opinion uh, as uh, as more important than we do, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is partly a question of, of size. You know, we, we have fewer people reporting and, and opinionating. Um, now, all that means, all of that adds up to the fact that news organisations are under immense pressure and that, therefore, a potential business model is to narrow cast in terms of politics. Uh, I think that does mean that, well, it means firstly that news organisations in the broad are less likely to be focused on holding governments to account as a, as a general point, as opposed to holding the politicians they don't like to account. Uh, and I think it means that, yeah, that we, the, the voters, are less tuned into holding all politicians to account. We are more likely to be consuming news and opinions which support us in uh, holding the politicians we don't like to account. And that is, and of course, that's a problem. Very long-winded answer, Tom, I'm sorry. No, but it's fine. But you, 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 you've landed where I think is a useful point of reflection. Um, if and well, we both consume, or well, we both read. I don't necessarily like the term consume. We would both read all sorts of stuff. Mm. Um, uh, how did? One of the things that I consciously do is suggest to people that they subscribe to different newsletters online, whether it be Sky News, The Guardian, ABC, whatever, so they're getting some sense of different flavours. Yes. Yep. Um, Is that something that you think people could be doing just to mitigate that you know, just hearing that one sound or one kind of theme or one, um, I mean, having one kind of intellectual diet, I think, is the, the word I'm looking mm. for. Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly important to read a range of news sources. Um, what I think is very difficult there is while it is important to read news from outlets you might not typically agree with, uh, as outlets become increasingly polarised, that, that does sometimes make their, their reporting less reliable, and that's that's a, a problem. So in theory, yes, I, I support people cons- uh, reading a diversity of stories, but um, in practice, I think it's becoming harder and harder. Uh, now, that said, one of the uh, piece of advice that I read very, very early, I think back at university, was um, read the news and learn who the names you think you can trust are, not the names that you agree with, but the names that you trust. Uh, And I I think that remains very good advice. Uh, If you are interested in reading about the news and reading about the world and about politics, then you will quickly find the commentators and journalists who you believe give you an honest opinion. Uh, Now, that honest opinion might have a political tint to it, but... Uh, an honest opinion uh, is different from a person who is always trying to make the facts conform to their vision of the world. Uh, that's yeah. when that's when news gets into trouble. And that's a convenient place to sort of wrap 
things up. Sean, where can people get hold of a copy of uh, the game? Look, it's, it's available in all uh, all bookstores. I, I recommend going to your local bookstore. Um, you can also get it online at the Black Ink INC website uh, or anywhere you would buy a book, really. I've got mine. i got mine via iBooks. I can confirm that the iBooks version works and downloads perfectly. Beautiful. <laughs> Thanks Sean, so much, Tom. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for joining me. It'd be great to chat to you again at some point. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom.